everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Ellie Savitt, the DA from Washtenaw County, Michigan, which is the home of Ann Arbor. How are you doing, Ellie? I'm, I'm doing well. It's a little bit cold in Ann Arbor today, but, uh, you know, that's January in Michigan for you. Yeah, I was uh, commenting that we're having a heat wave. It's going to be 60 degrees here in Davis, California. So uh, glad we're here, not there. (laughs) Yeah, well, when it gets to 60 degrees, people are, uh, you know, in in shorts and at the beach in Michigan. So yeah, look forward to those days. So uh, it's been a while since uh, we last checked in with you. How's your first year been? You know, I'm, I'm really proud of uh, a lot of the stuff, the new initiatives, new programs that we put into place uh, in our first year in office. Uh, I think we've made a lot of strides towards making the criminal legal system fairer and more equitable, uh, making sure that we're focusing on the right things. Uh, we got a great team here. So uh, I'm proud of what we've done in year one, and I'm looking forward to continuing to build in, uh, in, the, in the coming year as well. So what would you say your major initiatives have been? Well, uh, that's that's a long list because, uh, you know, I came in and I had uh, a lot that I wanted to change and a uh, a pretty broad agenda. Uh, I guess I can start with uh, some some of our policies. We've uh, taken proactive steps to turn the page on the war on drugs in Washtenaw County. Uh, We've put into place new policies where we are not charging cannabis-related crimes. Uh, Following up on an Ann Arbor City Council resolution, we no longer charge uh, crimes related to uh, the use, possession, or cultivation of entheogenic plants, psychedelic mushrooms. Um, You know, taking a page from what was really a successful thing that was done in Chittenden County, Vermont, uh, we are no longer prosecuting uh, unauthorized use, possession, or small-scale distribution of buprenorphine, a uh, opioid treatment medication, because we know that if you're using that off script, really for that person, it's very likely the choice is either that or heroin or fentanyl. So uh, anything that we can do from a harm reduction perspective to not uh, put somebody who may be in recovery uh, back on the path to using fentanyl, using heroin and overdosing uh, is something that uh, I think absolutely we should be doing. Uh, you know, we've, we've made major reforms to our uh, pretrial detention system. We uh, have not sought cash bail in a single case since I've been in office. Uh, you know, I know cash bail is something that uh, a lot of people 
do not understand very well, but I want to be very clear. What this means is that uh, we are seeking to hold people in jail if they're dangerous, uh, and we are not seeking to hold them if they're not. And so uh, the amount of money that you have in your bank account uh, really shouldn't play a role in uh, in, in pretrial uh, detention. Uh, and we continue to seek to hold those that are dangerous, but we try to apply the same standards to everybody, whether they are wealthy or whether they are poor. Um, you know, there's a number of other policies. We've got a, a, a treat kids like kids policy. Uh, we're no longer charging young people for minor school-based behavior, you know, a fight in the hallway, uh, you know, an eighth grader stealing a calculator from another eighth grader's backpack, uh, vaping, uh, you know, uh, smoking, typical adolescent experimentation. Uh, it's not to say that we don't think there should be consequences for that, but look, uh, we all know that people that look like me as a white guy, uh, the consequences that are imposed are often at home or at school, uh, and the school-to-prison pipeline uh, treats a lot of kids differently and you know doing what kids do making the mistakes that kids make shouldn't tether you to the criminal legal system uh we've got policies around uh, immigration uh we've got an immigration conscious uh charging policy prioritized our um uh, our, our certification of T visas and U visas for uh, non-citizen victims who have been uh, human trafficked or have uh, uh, assisted law enforcement in solving particularly serious crimes. Uh, and that's been going quite well. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we put in place a new policy in which we are not charging low-level contraband crimes uh, stemming from pretext stops. Uh, so, you know, this is when a, cop, uh, a police officer will pull you over in your car uh, and, you know, a minor traffic violation, but use that with no additional legal justification as a opportunity to uh, search your car. And what we're saying is, look, uh, we all know that this is tied to racial profiling. Uh, I've never been asked for consent to search my car for being pulled over for traffic violations. Uh, and, you know, every motorist should, should know, look, if you're gonna get a ticket, let's get the ticket and let's move on to that. Uh, but we don't wanna be part of a system in which, you know, motorists are stopped and it's used as a fishing expedition looking for something more without any real suspicion of uh, a crime. So that's some of the uh, uh, stuff on, from a policy perspective we've been doing. I'll stop there, but I'm also really excited to talk about some of the new programs that we have. Well, I wanted to uh, go back. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of your opioid uh, charging policies. One thing that we've been seeing is kind of the return to the bad old days where um, some uh, prosecutors across the country are talking about charging people that uh, sell opioids to people, fentanyl in, in particular, and then it results in an overdose. And they're, they're starting to talk about charging them with murder. Uh, have you seen that? We, we've seen a couple of uh, those cases. And, and look, every case is dependent on its particular facts. Um, what I will say is with respect to drug distribution and, and even drug distribution uh, causing death, you have to take a look at all the factual circumstances. Uh, and, you know, on, on one end of the spectrum, if you are selling cannabis that's laced 
with fentanyl to young people uh, and they're not aware that it's laced with fentanyl and somebody overdoses and dies, uh, absolutely, uh, you know, I will say, I do think there should be very serious consequences uh, attached to that. But if you are somebody that is, you know, using yourself and the distribution that you are engaged in is really sharing with your friends, for example, uh, and one of them tragically overdoses, it is just far too harsh and really unjustifiable to charge that person with murder. So you need to look at the facts of every particular case. I, I do make a distinction between for-profit uh, drug enterprises, especially those that are selling drugs that, that are, are dangerous uh, and you know the, the, their clientele doesn't know about it. The, those are folks that we're we're going to continue to prosecute. And I think should be prosecuted, um, and and should should in some cases be be prosecuted very harshly. But drug distribution laws are so broad that often what we do when we are charging them is sweeping in people who are are really just dealing with an addiction themselves, and uh, you know it's it's not justified, uh, nor does it protect public safety to um, you know sentence them to, to to long prison terms rather than having a rehab option. And then on bail reform, that's kind of become, unfortunately, a lightning rod of a lot of the pushback. Uh, have you guys seen that yet uh, in, in Michigan where, you know, somebody's released on either no bail or reduced bail, mm -hmm. commits a crime, and then um, everything blows up from there? So, you know, uh, we've not seen it like we saw it with the tragedy in Wisconsin or, uh, or, or, or some other places. And what I'll say is, look, whenever I hear about those types of tragedies, and they are tragedies, uh, you know, I, I really think it behooves us to take a step back and think about what we're really advocating for. The guy in Wisconsin that, that killed uh, six people at the Christmas parade, uh, there was a lot of outrage about uh, his bond being set at $1,000 uh, for a previous incident in which he tried to run over an intimate partner with his car using the same uh, weapon that he ended up using to kill six people. And in my view, uh, it, focusing on bail reform as the culprit there is really misplaced because the fact of the matter is that is somebody that, that I think, you know, no knowing what I know about the facts, probably should have been held uh, on those charges, regardless of how much money he had in his bank account. You know, that pattern of conduct is something that's not just unique to people of lower socioeconomic status. Uh, if you set his bail, uh, you know, at 25,000, I don't know if he could have made it, 50,000. There's, there's a lot of pretty wealthy people that engage in escalating domestic violence. So when we're arguing about what the right number is, I really think we're missing the point. The size of your bank account shouldn't dictate your freedom. I do think that there are some people that pose an imminent threat to the community and need to be held pending trial. But why on earth would the fact that somebody who is dangerous and has money allow that dangerous person to get out? That's no more justified, in my view, than having a poor person who doesn't pose a danger sitting in jail, languishing on 500, 1,000, uh, $5,000 bond. So, uh, you know, I, I think that these tragedies where people are released on low bond is really a ringing endorsement in some ways of uh, ending the cash bail system and moving towards a system that uh, really takes stock of a person's dangerousness and not just of the size of their bank account. 
I completely agree. I think that that's my biggest problem with the bail system is that you could have a million dollar bail and some uh, somebody's able to uh, pay that. Um, you know, who's to say that they're not going to go out and commit another crime? I mean, that money is is not a barrier. And, and it's happened. Look, you know, uh, there was a there, there was a finance uh, guy in Connecticut that was accused of a really brutal crime, kidnapping and killing his wife, uh, you know, intimidating witnesses and and the like. And he got a six million dollar bond, which which people would say that's a very big bond. But that guy had money. So he was out the next day. Um, so so far, have you had any pushback against any of your reform policies? So, you know, uh, look, what I what I always like to say is that if it was easy and if everybody agreed on it, uh, it would have been done a long time ago. So you don't come in and make major changes the way that we have made them without uh, experiencing, uh, you know, some folks that disagree with you. What I will say here uh, in Washtenaw County is that uh, I, I think that there's a couple of things that have worked to our advantage. Number one, uh, after I won the Democratic primary in August, and this is a Democratic stronghold in Michigan, so I knew there was not going to be, uh, you know, I, I was going to win the general election and indeed no Republican filed to run against me. So I had uh, between August and January of 2020 to uh, really uh, plan out my transition and put in place uh, some meat on the bones with the policies that I ran on. And we opened that process up to the broader community, including folks who, you know, don't come from the exact same political perspective as I do. So we had a dozen working groups across a dozen different working uh, areas. And uh, we had representatives on those working groups from law enforcement. Uh, we had prosecutors. We had, uh, you know, folks that represented uh, victims' rights groups. Uh, we, of course, had, you know, folks from the ACLU, defense lawyers, faith leaders, educational leaders. Uh, we tried to make it as broad a tent as possible. And uh, I think that worked well for a couple of reasons. Number one is substance. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, Sometimes what happens when reform prosecutors take office is they've got their day one memo, but because, you know, for whatever reason, uh, either they didn't have enough time or, or the community, uh, you know, wasn't engaged or wasn't willing to engage with them uh, in as uh, robust a fashion, there are some holes in their policies that really uh, jump out at people and, and upset people. The participation in our working groups from law enforcement, from uh, you know domestic violence advocates and the like, some of whom had you know concerns about what we were doing around pretrial detention, really made the ultimate substantive product stronger because they brought up specific cases, specific examples, what they're seeing on the ground. They said, you know, I understand what you're trying to do. What are you going to do about this particular? scenario. And we hashed it out uh, and we put in place policies that addressed them. And uh, as a result, when the policies were released, uh, we had really covered a lot of ground and anticipated a lot of the potential holes uh, in those policies that, that we might have had had we not had such robust participation from the broader 
community. So, uh, you know, this is not like a like a genius plan on my part. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we did the working groups. I'm happy that we extended open invitations. But really, I think it's a testament to the community here and to our partners that they uh, said, OK, you know, um, uh, may have even supported somebody else in the election, but Ellie won. He's going to be the prosecutor. Uh, I know he's got his vision. It's what the people voted for. Let's work together. Let's work together to make sure that this is promoting the vision the voters chose, promoting equity and fairness, but also making sure that we are uh, taking stock of any public safety concerns. So can you give an example of that? Sure. So, so, so absolutely. So um, with our pretext stop policy, right? And what our pretext stop policy says is that if a law enforcement officer pulls somebody over for a minor traffic violation, you know, not because they're investigating a, a crime, but just a standard traffic stop, and they go, uh, you know, to the driver's side window and they say, uh, you wouldn't mind if I just looked around your car to make sure you don't have anything, right? Um, and that results in the discovery of contraband. We're not bringing those contraband charges. Now, of course, it's different if they have a legitimate reason to investigate or they have probable cause to search. Uh, that's different. Um, but one thing that uh, some law enforcement officers brought up about this policy is they said, well, look, there are often cases where uh, we may have justification to search, but asking for consent to search uh, is a good de-escalation technique rather than, uh, you know, simply saying, you know, we've got, we, 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 we uh, have a tip from a confidential informant, something like that. And especially on the confidential informant piece, they said, we don't want to put that in the police report. We can put it in the police report, uh, you know, the, the, the cause that we had to search, uh, notwithstanding the, uh, the, the fact that we chose to get consent anyway. But what are we supposed to do about a confidential informant? We put that in a police report. We're worried about that person being in danger. And I said, that is a great point. Uh, and I totally understand if you've got a tip from a confidential informant, make a traffic stop, right? Um, but really what you are looking for is, uh, you know, suspicion of a crime with that individual that you don't want to put all that in the police report and put somebody's life at danger. So I said, look, we're going to put a, a clause in this policy, which says that, you know, on paper, that may be something that looks like a pretext stop. But if law enforcement has been doing this investigation, just calls the office and says, here's what's going on. We've got a confidential informant. We'll inform you of the facts of this orally. Then we know it's not really a pretext stop. It was part of an ongoing investigation. And I thought that made a lot of sense. So that's that, that's one example. No, and that's a good one because, you know, there's a big difference between being a pretext stop and being a uh, a stop to investigate based on actual information. Absolutely, absolutely. And the former is what we're trying to address and the latter is legitimate. Yeah, completely. So that, that's a good example. So has, has being able to do that then kind of tamped down some of the angst that some of these policies have uh, generated elsewhere? You know, I think that it bought us some time uh, and then I think that as we move forward and the world didn't fall apart, uh, that tamped down anxiety uh, as well. You know, the truth of the matter is that uh, whenever you have change, your partners are going to be anxious. And I ran a very 
robust campaign around the need to reform our criminal legal system. And often people just hear sort of the headlines. And, you know, uh, as a result of that, may have some fear about how it's going to play out in practice. So I think putting in place those working groups, getting that input from uh, stakeholders, bought us a few months because you know people could see okay my colleague was on that working group and they're not crazy and and i know that if they signed their name uh you know and, and agreed to have their name uh, as a member of the working group uh, attached to this policy that is probably not too bad so i'm going to give it a chance and then you know just sort of day to day uh, we continue to focus on serious crimes. We continue to prosecute serious crimes. We continue not to screw around when we think somebody poses a danger to the community. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie and say there weren't a few uh, speed bumps along the way, both as my office became acclimated to the policies and understanding exactly what I wanted and what I didn't want. Uh, and then also uh, so that uh, law enforcement could see, you know, for, for example, uh, don't even bother with the marijuana charges anymore. I'm really serious. I'm not prosecuting them. Uh, but I think we've, we, we've, we came to a point where we've, we've reached a good working relationship. And I think that initial uh, stakeholder buy-in and uh, really sharing of information bought us a time that we needed uh, to establish a record of trust. So how did your office respond? Did people leave? Did people adjust? Um, is there turmoil? I will say this, uh, you know, I, I go to sort of progressive prosecutor conferences uh, through fair and just prosecution. And, and uh, I sit there and I hear people's war stories uh, about their own offices. And I could not be luckier with the group that we have here. Uh, and, and I really mean that wholeheartedly. We were fortunate uh, because of a few things. One is that, you know, I, I replaced a 28 year uh, prosecuting attorney who'd been around for a while. And uh, as a result of that, sort of naturally via attrition, even before I started running, a lot of the folks that uh, were the old guard there had reached the age of retirement or were moving on uh, to, to other things. Some folks, uh, and, and you know, I, I don't fault them for this. Some folks looked at my policies, looked at the direction uh, we were going in and decided, you know, uh, I don't want to work in this office anymore. And that's, and that, and that was fine. Um, and, you know, we wished them good luck on their future endeavors and they decided to leave. Uh, we only had to make one personnel change um, in our, in, in our whole office and everybody else uh, that wanted to stay, we rehired. And then we got a, a lot of interest from just incredibly talented lawyers uh, across the state that knew what we were about, that uh, actually applied specifically to this office, liked the vision, and were excited about using their discretion in a way that was rehabilitative, uh, that helped all parties, rather than just having really strict uh, and stringent um, sort of policies uh, that, that applied across the board that they had to impose. So we've got a fantastic office. I, I, I mean that wholeheartedly. I, I couldn't be happier with the folks that we have that are new, but even more importantly, the folks that stayed, that gave us a chance, that, um, you know, knowing everything that was coming, decided to continue to work in this administration. They have risen to the occasion. And what I, I will say I like best about this office is now we're reaching a point uh, where we've got 
some folks that are coming to uh, us in leadership with ideas about new programs they can put into place that are rehabilitative. They're actually bringing this up from their perspective on the ground. We've already put a few of those in place. So it's been really successful uh, you know, within the office and I just couldn't be happier or more proud to work uh, with this really dedicated group of lawyers who, I, to a person, I know are trying to do the right thing. So how are things going with respect to wrongful convictions and post-conviction review and things like that? Yeah, so uh, this was one of my major pushes in year one. Uh, I wanted to stand up a conviction integrity and expungement unit. I know that's not typically two things that you see married to each other, but I'll explain in a second. Conviction integrity units review uh, old uh, convictions where there is a claim of actual innocence is something that I just absolutely needed to have in this office. And, and you know, I made clear, like, I, I do not want to have an office without it because if the prosecutor's office has put an innocent person behind bars, we have an ethical obligation to fix that injustice. And prosecutors are uniquely situated to do that. Um, and I think every office of any size needs a conviction integrity unit to look into those old past convictions where there is a credible claim of actual innocence. But the other thing that happened in Michigan this year is the Michigan legislature, a new law went into effect that provided a, a, around a million Michiganders an opportunity to expunge their old criminal record. Um, and th- that was something that was really transformative to many, many people, but you still had to go through the application process. And one thing that has held a lot of people back is it's all too common that uh, people will have something on their record when it wasn't actually them. It, you know, you, you, you come in to expunge an old marijuana conviction uh, and you, they say, well, you're ineligible because you've got a, uh, you know, an attempted murder charge out of Muskegon. They say, well, I've never been to Muskegon. It turns out the guy's name is Michael Smith. That's a different Michael Smith in Muskegon. So we said, what if we can actually help people uh, clear those up just like we clear up wrongful convictions, but clear up those errors on people's criminal records. Uh, and so we, we married the two and we brought in one of the uh, nation's leading innocence attorneys. Her name's Frances Walters, and she was previously the uh, legal director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, came home to Washtenaw County uh, to, to, to work in our office. And she's been leading the Conviction Integrity and Expungement Unit, uh, and it was permanently funded by the uh, county commission in November. Uh, now, in the interim, uh, they, they allowed us to put it into place uh, on an interim basis in February, and she has done a fantastic job on expungement. We've affirmatively ass- assisted over 500 people on expungement, and we're really just rolling into the review of uh, old uh, innocence claims. Uh, but we've got, we, we've got over 20 that, that the, uh, the office is currently investigating, and uh, you know, look for more soon on that. So it it seems like you've so far avoided most of uh, the drama that uh, a lot of other progressive prosecutors have seen. What what does Michigan look like as a whole politically? It seems like Michigan had uh, an interesting uh, period of time for the last year or so. 
Well, you know, we've got uh, we're, we're a purple state. We've got Democratic governor, uh, attorney general, secretary of state. Uh, but we also have Republicans that uh, are are in control of uh, both both houses of the legislature. Um, so and and look, you know, much like other other states, uh, you see blue pockets uh, where where you have, you know, major urban centers such as Detroit. Uh, Ann Arbor is a college community uh, and that's the biggest jurisdiction or, or biggest uh, city in our jurisdiction. Uh, and then you have a lot of uh, really redder parts of the state in, in your more rural areas. So politically, it's a pretty evenly divided state. And, you know, we have Republican governors, we have Democratic uh, governors. Um, but what I will say is that that there has been a, a pretty big push around criminal justice reform in, uh, in Washtenaw County for uh, a, a, a the last few years and, and in the state of Michigan as a whole as well, like I mentioned, uh, the expungement legislation, that was bipartisan uh, and it had both Democrats and Republicans championing it. Very interesting. Um, and what, what's happening with the crime rate? Um, I know, you know, in a lot of areas, murders have gone way up. Um, you know, out here, uh, one of the big issues is, uh, you know, retail theft uh, stuff. What's happening there? We have certainly seen uh, an increase, uh, you know, both in Washtenaw County and across the state in in gun violence, and that that reflects the national trends. Um, uh, you know, I, I I think that fundamentally the reason for that is pretty simple. You saw gun sales rise by seventy percent during the pandemic, and the more guns you have out there, the more likely it is that any particular um, uh, altercation is going to end in gun violence. Uh, so it's absolutely something that we are seeing and, you know, we're, we're working on proactive uh, strategies to reduce gun violence, but it's a real concern here, just as it is nationwide. And, um, you know, how are you guys responding to that? Well, look, I mean, obviously we prosecute the, the, the gun crimes. Uh, that's, I mean, that, that, that's the main thing. But uh, in addition to that, we're, we're working with violence interrupters on the ground, uh, community members, many of whom have, you know, uh, old criminal records and have some credibility because uh, they have a past, but now are trying to help their community and step in where they see disputes and feuds getting out of uh, control to where they might end up in gun violence. And so, um, you know, we work with uh, groups on the ground there. Our sheriff's office does a really good job uh, engaging in violence interruption strategies. And, and really at the end of the day, uh, that's the key, you know, uh, police and prosecutors are responsive. They can come in, make an arrest, prosecute after something bad has already happened. And certainly you can incapacitate somebody by sending them to prison. And, and, and I do think that people that, you know, shoot guns at each other need to be put in prison. Um, but, you know, you don't prevent it from happening in the first place. And if we're really concerned about public safety, uh, it's got to be a both end. Obviously, there needs to be consequences when you pull the trigger on a gun. There's no question about that. But really what we should be focusing on, uh, in addition to that, is making sure that it doesn't get to that point in the first place, because I don't want to be in a position where we can only do something after uh, there's already been the victim of a crime. And kind of a broader question, I mean, Right now, we've seen a few years of criminal justice reform and some progress there. And then maybe in the last few months, maybe a pushback. 
What do you see as the major challenge for the criminal justice reform movement at this point? You know, I think we have to do a better job of highlighting successes. Uh, you hear about failures uh, in the criminal legal system when somebody goes out and, and, and commits a crime. And of course, that's always something that's blamed on uh, more progressive policies, more progressive prosecutors. Uh, I will note that we never uh, impose the same level of scrutiny on the traditional law enforcement uh, establishment. We never say, well, this person got out of prison and then did something again. Why wasn't the prison more rehabilitated, right? Uh, why didn't we do something to get this person turned back around? Um, but there's a number of success stories too. And because those aren't headline grabbing, uh, they often go overlooked. I'll give you an example. Uh, we put into place Michigan's first pre-plea diversion program in Washtenaw County, which means that uh, you know typically you have to plead guilty to a crime uh, in order to get access to rehabilitative services, substance use treatment, mental health treatment, and the like. And that can be really damaging to people because even pleading guilty to a crime, even though it might be dismissed a year later if you complete your programming, uh, that can put you at risk of losing housing, losing your job. For non-citizens, that very act of pleading guilty triggers the immigration consequences. It doesn't matter what happened down the road. And so, uh, uh, you know, we said, look, let's rewind the clock. Let's make available those exact same services, but before somebody pleads guilty. And if you, uh, you know, succeed, we can dismiss the case without having entered a guilty plea. And if you fall down, if you're, if you're unwilling to abide by the terms uh, or unable to, then we have the option of moving forward with the original case. Well, uh, we launched this in May, uh, and we have a 98% success rate uh, with that program. That means 98% of the people that went through it or are going through it are either on track to complete the program or have already completed it and had their charges dismissed. And there are stories that come out of that. Uh, you know, we had somebody that shoplifted a bottle of wine because he was in recovery, but but relapsed, uh, went back to alcohol use. Uh, and in fact, uh, what, uh, what we were able to do was get him set up with, uh, with, with housing, get him back into his program uh, and not disrupt his life any more than it had already been disrupted. And he's doing great now. And he was, uh, you know, his case was dismissed last week. That's success story. Uh, and we need to focus uh, as, a, as a movement, I think, uh, just as much on those as, uh, you know, the folks that oppose reform focus on the stories uh, that, that, that grab headlines uh, and, are, and are real tragedies. And I think, you know, one of the problems is somebody who has to cover both ends of that is that, you know, you say 98% success rate, hey, that's great, you know, but you could have 99% of the people, 99 out of 100 people doing real well in this program. And then one person, uh, you know, uh, shoots somebody up and um, nobody's ever going to pay attention to the other 99. Yeah. Um, so, 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 and that's a real, that, that is a real problem. That is a real problem. Um, but I, but I think what we've, what we've got to do is really highlight the successes and, um, uh, and move forward based on that. All right. So um, in our last few minutes, uh, what else would you like to do? Uh, you know, kind of your second year plan. 
Well, uh, we want to we, we want to expand that pre-plea diversion program. Uh, we've got new programs that are uh, coming online uh, around making sure that young people are able to um, uh, to, to get out from under the, uh, the the thumb of the criminal legal system, uh, regardless of how much money they have. Uh, it's going to be a restitution earning program. Where we're looking forward to announcing that uh, sometime in the next few weeks. Um, but you know, the, the, the key now is we're really in the building phase. We want to build up programs and alternatives to the criminal legal system so that the criminal legal system isn't the only way that we have to deal with harm. And, and we've got a number of things in the works and I'm looking forward to rolling them out. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and uh, sharing what's going on in Michigan. All right. Thank you so much. You, Ellie Sabat. He's the DA in Washtenaw County, Michigan, home of Ann Arbor and the University of Michigan. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.